Explore the depths of your curiosity with aerospace engineer John Connolly, Columbia Space Center's Benjamin Dickow, and CEO of Heavy Metal Magazine, Matthew Medney, as they bring scientists, engineers, and authors on a journey of discovery. This is putting the science in science fiction, where fiction and science collide. On this episode of Putting the Sign Science Fiction, we have Jeff Berkowitz, a sci-fi magazine uh, writer by night and data scientist or material scientist. No, I'm actually not a scientist. I'm a marketer who works in uh, biotech and life, life sciences. So I always say I got into the science field through the science fiction side of things. And, and I mean that seriously. Tell us all a little about what you do in the biotech world and then how that all worked around science. Cause I remember when we first talked, uh, when you interviewed us for the sci-fi mag thing, I found what you were doing just fascinating. Cause I know nothing about that world whatsoever. So a lot of the things that I work on, on the marketing side, 15 years ago were science fiction. Mm. They, they didn't exist. Uh, the great example that I always use for people is CRISPR. Um, which is uh, editing technology for um, genetics. And it was uh, actually the two women that, that discovered it just got the Nobel Prize. Nobel this Prize, year. yeah. Yep. One of the quickest turnarounds, by the way, for from the discovery to receiving the Nobel Prize, which gives you a sense of how vital and important it has become. When I started working at the company, um, the company I work for is called Thermo Fisher Scientific. And they are very well known in the research industry. As a matter of fact, I venture to say that there is not a research lab in the world that does not have something from Thermo Fisher Scientific within it, somewhere, someplace. So I worked at a company actually called Life Technologies, which was very well known at the time for making sequencers and real-time PCR equipment um, and all the various reagents and consumables and purification filters and things like that that go into and are used in that process. We were purchased around 2014 uh, by uh, Thermo Fisher Scientific and I have remained there. And I run a writing team within uh, the life sciences business within Thermo Fisher Scientific that is devoted to taking whatever is handed to us and turning it into something that's understandable by either scientists or lay people, depending on who the audience is for what we have. And I run a team that is comprised uh, both uh, PhD level scientists. So I have people who have all kinds of different backgrounds in, in science and also creative writers. So people who come from ad, traditional ad agencies. I had a guy who used to work on the Absolute Vodka account and things like that. And we all work together very well. We mesh wonderfully in terms of whatever a business unit within the company throws us. We have someone who can figure out what they're trying to say, how they're trying to say it, take the science and turn it into something that is either completely understandable by a scientist at the level they need to talk to, or on the flip side, completely understandable to a layperson who maybe is looking to invest in the company. Or and that's exactly just, what this yeah. podcast is about, is taking science and making it more accessible. So now... For, for our listeners, how did you get into sci-fi magazine? Because that's pretty cool, too. That, that's a whole other side of your, of your um, aura, which is that you're the senior writer at Sci-Fi Mag, which is a quarterly? 
it's now quarterly. Just this year, 2020, it turned from bi-monthly to quarterly. And I actually, oh, wow, this is a long story, so I'll try and shorten it. Um, I've been writing uh, on and off for various science fiction publications and music publications, actually, since about 1990. So um, around that time, I created a little journal. It was a digest-sized journal called Asterism, which was devoted to science fiction, fantasy, and space music. And at the time, my thought was, you go into the bookstore and everything is sort of arranged by, by genre. You've got romantic pieces, or, or you've got romance, you've got science fiction, you've got psychology, you've got whatever. And yet you go into a, at the time, a record store. There was no internet at that time, or at least no internet that I could get to. Um, at that time, and you had everything divided by rock, metal, jazz, classical, and I decided how can I look at it, how can I look at music in the same way you might look at the topic of a book? So I would find CDs at the time, uh, LPs, that were focusing on science fiction themes, and I remember the first one, one of the first ones that I wrote about was uh, The Songs of Distant Earth, by which was Arthur C. Clarke wrote it, but um, uh, Mike Oldfield, who's famous for doing the theme right. to The Exorcist, did a whole uh, CD based on it. And he really nicely interpreted what Clark was trying to say. And basically for about two years, ran this publication. And I used to send it out to various public, other publications to get covered in. I got some nice coverage, but a number of those publications said, wow, this is really good. We'd like to write about it, but would you be interested in being our music journalist, our music editor? And so that's how I got my foot in the door. And I used to write for Science Fiction Weekly, which was a part of sci-fi.com. And that got the door open for me to other magazines like Cinescape, which was a big magazine in its day, and uh, Sci-Fi Entertainment, which was the predecessor to Sci-Fi, and Sci-Fi Universe, a whole number of these publications. And then I ended up um, in 2000, being the entertainment editor at galaxyonline.com, which was what sci-fi.com is now. But during the dot-com boom, that was the version. It was the, it had Harlan Ellison. It had David <laughs> Gerald was on staff. Wow. It had Ben Boba was my boss. There. <laughs> um, it was a really kind of high-powered uh, company and team that really had a great vision. And then the dot-com bubble burst. And everybody kind of scattered, although I do keep in touch with some of the folks there. Um, and then after that, I became uh, the editor-in-chief briefly of Amazing Stories magazine and ran Amazing Stories for a few issues before it burst. Um, <laughs> and the internet kind of really took over everything. And uh, Sci-Fi remains actually, to the best of my knowledge, at least here in North America, the last magazine standing, the last print publication. Wow for science fiction in terms of media coverage. There are a couple of other Digest ones, Analog and the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction that are still out there. But uh, sci-fi is the one that you would find at Barnes and Noble, and Walmart and places like that. So, hmm. uh, and I love it, I, I just love it. So uh, as, as Matt kind of said, I, I get to be a sci-fi guy by night and a semi-scientist by day. And then I always say a superhero in between. So. <laughs> Amazing. Um, when when we had you on for what was it? The history of heavy metal yep. at Comic Con. Um, 
you you became the quasi historian for the episode on all things heavy metal and in 2020 and you know there's things like uh on what was it sunday that the virgin hyperloop uh test uh went went uh went out which i think uh even though they're supposed to go at 600 miles an hour the test was at 100 but that passed and now they're moving on to the next uh next step and their reasoning for it only being 100 was because the track wasn't long enough to stop it at the end which i can (laughs) buy for now um but jeff what is uh what are your thoughts on some some of these you know science fiction sort of constructs actually starting to become realities. I mean, Japan just um, just uh, successfully took flight on a uh, on a manned uh, flying car uh, last month as well. So how, how do you see these science fiction sort of moments that you've probably edited over the last 15, 20 years starting to actually become reality? The interesting thing for me is is they are becoming reality now. And perhaps they're becoming reality a little bit faster than they may have been in the past because you've got a lot of privatization of of things that in the past really you needed industry to do. You also have people like Elon Musk or Richard Branson who have the money and the wherewithal to be able to, to do these things. But I will say that it's not brand new, this idea. You have to remember when the space race first began, you were looking at, you know, Arthur C. Clarke had, had posited the idea of satellites and suddenly satellites were coming out. It was a lot of, of you know, it was some effort. It wasn't just, um, you know, hey, someone let's launch a satellite. Mm-hmm. But I want to, you know, I, I want to put it into some perspective that we are in a position right now in terms of news media, the 24-hour news cycle and things like that, that we're hearing a lot more of these things that perhaps were happening throughout history. That having been said, like I, like, I, like I said before, I think it is accelerating to a certain extent. And I, I think we are living in a great time in that regard. And I'll point even at something that, that I'm uh, tangentially involved in and that we're all impacted by, and that's COVID-19. Look at how quickly we are getting, just today, they announced a 90% efficacy rate right. for, uh, for a proposed vaccine from Pfizer. And that was put together in less than a year from literally from sequencing the genome in December-ish, December, January, to having uh, what looks to be a feasible uh, vaccine in eight, nine months. That's incredible. That is science fiction. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that there are a lot of things like that that are happening a little faster. I think that is because you do have a certain amount of crowdsourcing and crowd, um, uh, I would say on some level funding, not necessarily with these groups, they're, they're getting a lot of government funding, but a lot of crowdsourcing that, that is allowing things to happen that we didn't have 20, 30 years ago because we didn't have the internet. We didn't have the ability to get that information. That's both bad and good because there is no filter, there's no editorial function oftentimes on the internet. So while we're seeing a lot of good stuff happening, I'm always careful to say some bad stuff can happen too. And we do see some of that in terms of hate speech and and things that are coming out in that regard. But um, I hope that answers your question. I I think it's, it's great to see, I think it is accelerating, but I'm always careful to say, we aren't living in a time where it's like never happened before. This is, it's, we're still seeing this. 
Uh, yeah, on that note, Jeff, I remember uh, reading an article today about EVE Online being used to crowdsource mapping for COVID-19, and they were able to accomplish, you know, like it engaged uh, several hundred thousand people that were able to perform X number or millions tests, and it was like 39 years worth of testing that they were able to to yield by spreading it across that. And I mean, it's incredible to think about it. That was only a couple hundred thousand people. If you actually could use a sizable portion of the globe for what I can't, I don't, you know, that it, method. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It is incredible. And, and again, it's, it's, it's new and we're hearing about it, but if you recall back in like 2000, they SETI used to use uh, people's computers. There was this this kind of low power system that when your computer was off, it would help use your computing power to read through signals that they were picking up from outer space to see if they could find anomalies. Now, obviously, it doesn't sound like we found anything or we would have heard about it, I hope. But the idea that um, taking that crowdsourcing thing has been going on for some time just in various different ways. And I think the internet um, which, again, is another thing that in the 1950s and 1960s was science fiction, and now we take for granted, um, is, is incredible. And the other thing that I think is happening, and this speaks to what, what Matt was saying, when I look forward and what I see um, coming forward are things like transhumanism, where you become more and more integrated with electronics, with the internet mm. of things, such that whether it is something that is wired into you, whether it is something that you wear very closely. I mean, you're seeing it with an Apple Watch now. You're seeing it with your iPhone. How many people, and I know this is a, a trite example, but I've, I've seen it so many times. How many people have to have this phone in their hand at all times mm -hmm. and constantly checking it? Mm -hmm. it, it it's um, <laughs> what they call the Elon Musk said, COVID timing, I have no idea if it was like a day ago or three months ago, but <laughs> at this point in the last few months, uh, Elon's whole, uh, he did a whole speech on his neural net company and his whole point hmm. was that we are already cyborgs because of this, because right. you cannot leave this at home, you are connected to it via emotionally, if not physically, and if you're connected to it already and you are already a cyborg, then your thumbs are really inefficient way to get the information so why not just put it in your brain that was like his whole speech was that you're already a cyborg i'm just trying to make it more efficient for you i'd say it's even more than that i'd say it's yes agreed a hundred percent but how many of you actually it's it's not even just an exchange of information there's an emotional feeling how many oh, totally you, yeah. how many likes you get or how you know you put something online or, or whether it's facebook or instagram or whatever your social media uh, channel of choices you're you're looking okay did i get likes oh oh now i gotta respond to it now i gotta do this and suddenly um it it, it is feeding those endorphins it's feeding all kinds of emotions that are are above and beyond just being a cyborg you've 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 taken that machine and have it become part of your emotional being totally and and mm -hmm. and more so than even that with um have you seen the uh the demos of the new uh, Apple glasses that are coming out? Yes, I did. Actually, I think I commented on your putting it up. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So to me, those, you know, stuff like that is, um, as you said, it's accelerating it. And it's like, at, you know, I, I've been saying now, you know, this is, I feel like this is a less 
uh, ambitious statement now than it was when I started saying it 15 years ago. But I've been harping for a while now that I think within our lifetime, you will have someone voluntarily cut off one of their biological limbs for an robotic limb that is stronger, better, mm -hmm. etc. And it's fascinating to me to live in an era where, you know, the most amount of change between generations, mm. vast change between generations is happening right now. You know, until we get to a point where there are colonies on Mars, there won't be another generation where the grandparent and the kid are so vastly different in the way that they were brought up. And, mm. and I find that to be absolutely fascinating. I don't disagree with that. Again, I want to put in one bit of perspective that I always point out that my grandmother, who lived to be 98, was born in 1902, the year that the uh, Wright brothers first flew. And by 1969, so she was 67, we were on the moon. And by 2000, when she passed away, we had space, we had already, we're into our second space station. We were already talking about the ISS after um, the Soyuz uh, or Skylab had come down. So there really, it was accelerated. And when you think that's one lifetime, so it was across, say, three generations. Now I think we're seeing, to your point, some of the same thing, perhaps accelerated more. And I do think that, again, this integration of um, electronics, as it were, into humanity. And the other thing that I think is important and I think is something we have to keep an eye on is this idea, some of the idea of 3D printing, not so much in terms of the uh, mechanical part of it or the fact that we are coming up with, you know, we can create something out of plastic, but the idea that at some point we will be able to 3D print body parts, yeah. organic items. That is a super game changer. Um, mm -hmm. when you don't need a heart transplant. You just take some stem cells potentially from the, the individual and with enough warning and enough time, you will be able to build a new heart, mm -hmm. which will not be rejected, which will be right. able to function potentially perfectly. Now that is some, some years in the future. But it's not that many years in the future. That's the crazy thing. It's like, you know, 15 years ago, I remember watching a, a PBS um you know, show where it showed somebody 3D printed out a, a bit of cardiac tissue and it was pulsating and things like that. And now they've gone, you know, even farther to like a whole sort of mini organ and, and it's going to, it's going to get faster. I've got actually I got a question about that with your work with CRISPR and your sort of bio biotech stuff. Yeah. I feel like, you know, CRISPR is kind of being, I mean, Nobel prize, all that kind of stuff being touted as this, as this, somewhat wonder and it's not a drug but wonder drug kind of thing yeah. um could you talk a little bit about what what are the possibilities of that and then where do you see it going like what's the chatter in your industry about that well it's interesting the idea of crispr is that you are really when you cut through uh dna you in historically it was not as precise as you might like it to be sure. So CRISPR allows you to uh, almost use a scalpel. You can be very precise and get very uh, exacting edits on how you do it. Now, it's good and it, it, it has its, it's, it's not good, it's great. It is really propelling things forward. I do wanna make it clear that there's another thing called TALEN, um, and I always forget what it stands for, T-A-L-E-N, 
Yeah. And that is another type of editing that is not quite as precise, but for certain kinds of work that you need to do, it is important. It actually was around before CRISPR. CRISPR became kind of like the, the darling and, and it had its place. But Talon, you're starting to see Talon's coming back for certain uses. So, And for everyone listening, it's a transcription activator-like effector nucleuses, Talon. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Elegant. Um, <laughs> so, um, and CRISPR stands for something too. It's, right. not, it's not just the breakfast cereal anymore. <laughs> uh, it doesn't even have an I. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> oh, really? Um, or in, in it's, E. It's, it's, it's missing some vowels. Some vowel. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> missing, missing the E. I'm seeing it now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Fascinating. So these, um, you know, they they have different paths and they are used in different ways. Um, but they, particularly CRISPR, has opened up a lot of opportunities and a lot of abilities to bring things down almost to the um, I wouldn't quite call it the consumer level, although mm -hmm. consumers with the right amount of money and and resources can do a lot of this stuff. It's, mm -hmm. it's all of the equipment. It's like anything. It, it, it's like, uh, you know, the genome project costs mm -hmm. how many billions of dollars and, you know, 13 years to do. And now right. we can do the same thing for under $100 in less than 24 hours. Right, right, and right. Yeah, for, for all of the people listening who are more like me and less like you three, what is um, Talon and CRISPR and these genome sequencing in layman terms? Well, um, a couple of different things. So sequencing is... Um, Basically, where you are looking at your genome, looking at the gene, uh, the, the string, the DNA, the what you might know from science fiction is the Gattaca, G-A-T-C. Um, Nucleotides. Yes. Fantastic um, movie also. <laughs> and it was a great movie. That's another great science and fiction movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, basically, I'll, I'll take a step back. So first of all, you, you swab your cheek. And you always see that in, in CSI or whatever, and they swab the cheek and they put it in this thing and they, they first of all, they have to multiply what you've got there because you've only got a little bit, there may be pieces, there may be this. So they, they, they do what's called PCR, which, which is polymerase chain reaction, where they basically cycle through, it's called thermal cycling, to get that DNA to replicate. It basically, you've got the two strands of DNA, those are RNA, so each sing single one is RNA, it replicates, it replicates, it replicates, and after a relatively brief period of time, you end up with uh, millions of duplicate, duplicates, which allow you to do the experiments that you need to do, whatever that, or research that you need to do. But what you get just from your swab is not necessarily enough to do large-scale research. If you're looking like if Matt or Ben have committed a crime and we just wanna see if you're in a DNA database, then yes, we could probably use mm -hmm. just that amount and see it but um, if we're going to do research. So that is one of the first steps and one of the first parts of it. And if you're doing a COVID test, right, that, that's the same idea, right? That, that's what, when I was in, uh, when I went to get tested for COVID in LA, it was a swab where they, yep. where they it was like a drive, it was literally a drive-through here in California where mm -hmm. you go to a tent, they give you a little sealed packet, you swab the inside of your cheek, you put it back in, you give it to them and then they, they test it that way. Right. And there are different types of COVID tests at this point. There are some where you have to go through the nose. I've vehemently avoided those. Yes. And I, I'll take another step 
separate from that, it's kind of mixing apples and oranges a little bit, but it does speak to science fiction. It's the same way nowadays that they can do a, a test to see if you have uh, prostate cancer or some other types of cancer just by taking your blood because of what the cancer is throwing off, the wastes that those, can that those cells are, are throwing off are going to show up in your bloodstream. So it's an early detection way of doing things such that they can catch things now before you have any idea. Now, it's not perfect and there's still work to be done. But, you know, this, this kind of bloodborne DNA testing is an amazing thing that, again, 15 years ago, complete science fiction. And just in the same way that kind of these COVID tests were complete science fiction, because who would ever test for a virus by swabbing your mouth? They, you know, you'd go, oh, maybe they'd stick something up your nose because you have, you're, it's a respiratory thing in many cases. It, it lodges in the lung. Your mouth is being used for a lot of other things whereas your nose is a little bit more respiratory oriented. Mm -hmm. So um, so I'm getting a little bit off track, but I want to kind of keep focusing on the science and the fiction well, side of things. Well, and, but, uh, you know, you're talking about, uh, this is great science communication stuff, like just mm -hmm. breaking it down. Um, I'm wondering, you know, Chris, whenever in science fiction, well, I think it's a trope in science fiction, right? Where you talk about gene manipulation and things like that. And it's super often as mm -hmm. a negative. It's never yeah. a positive, right? But that comes out in in culture too, uh, GMOs and things like that. There's just a there's a visceral reaction out in society about anything with the word gene or genetic or anything like that. It's something that's going to be bad. So um, you you know talking about you know kind of what you do or at least the the sphere of your of your day job part of it. How do you feel like you you're able to kind of overcome any of the negative? you know, connotations to talking about something like CRISPR. Like, I, I think some people think about CRISPR and think, oh, well, then that means that if I'm sick, somebody's going to be able to use this to go in and um, manipulate my genome so that I can get better again. Mm -hmm. And not realizing that there's this whole sort of process that it's not going to, nobody's going to like real time manipulate your, the DNA inside of your body. It's going to be working on medicines that will help you, <laughs> you know, but that are customized to your biology. Absolutely. And, and I should, I want, I should make clear that almost everything that I work on, and when I say work on what I'm communicating about, mm -hmm. is what's called RUO, which stands for research use only. Mm. So I'm not, when you go into the, the doctor's office, you mm -hmm. are very rarely seeing something that I'm communicating about. Um, Got it that sort of thing. It's, it's really for research use. And um, we do what one part of our company does make the swabs that you use for your cheek, that sort of thing. And we do nice. make, we are a company that through an emergency use authorization does have equipment and um, things that are being used to test for COVID on humans. But that's an unusual situation here. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of this really is research. And the concept that, that you're touching on, uh, Ben, really talks a lot about that fear of mutation and that fear mm. of we're going to be changed. And you have to understand that our bodies, our cells are constantly recreating, reproducing, and there are always mutations going on. Hmm. Most of the time, they, they don't survive. They die. Right. That's it. Um, at any given moment, I don't have a figure, but there is some type of mutation going on in someone's body somewhere, you know, your body somewhere. Mm -hmm. And 99.999% of the time they die. 
when they don't die, you know, if their off switch, for example, doesn't uh, doesn't click in, that that's how you get cancer. That's a mutation that is. Mm-hmm taken over. And yes, there are some outside factors that can influence cancer, exposure to radiation, uh, chemicals, things like that. But in general, those things are not going to happen without some uh, either causal factor or genetic factor. Hmm. So putting that kind of on the side, uh, in, in terms of your question of that fear of playing with genetics, Yes, we can do it faster, but it doesn't happen in the scheme of like comic book fast, where um, you get bitten by a spider and magic yeah, yeah. powers. Yeah. Um, real. <laughs> I, I, I keep getting bitten by spiders, and here I am sitting just just normally. Um, that, it just doesn't happen that fast in terms of, of things. And the idea of genetic manipulation uh, has been going on for centuries. Gregor mm-hmm. Mendel mm-hmm. Was, was basically genetically manipulating plants. Right. When you, when you're, any dog that is bred for yeah. a specific purpose is being in its own way genetically man, manipulated. So mm-hmm. I think the bad rap, to be quite honest with you, and obviously I, I admit I'm biased, comes from things like companies that have the patent on a GMO type of corn or something, and then are very, uh, how can I put it? Vociferous, as it were, in terms of defending that patent when the right. corn blows into the next field right. and they go after that next farmer who didn't do anything or wasn't trying to do anything and just happened to have some corn that grew in his field. So right. I think there's a bad rap there, but I think most GMO, uh, most genetic manipulation is, is, is fine. And I think it's, I wouldn't call it the wave of the future because it's happening now. I think hmm. it's, it's interesting in a sense, the wave of the past, because it's just speeding up. We're just able to do it in a more controlled way, but we've been doing it in one way or another for, for centuries. I mean, look at basically anything that we grow or any animal that we produce for either food or companionship has in some way been genetically manipulated uh, by humans, maybe not by injecting, Maybe not by uh, going at the cellular level, but by going, you know what? This pig here is really fat and will make more piglets. This one is really skinny. Let's raise more of these fat ones mm-hmm. and stop doing these skinny ones. And it, you end up um, being genetically manipulated the same way humans are. If we mm-hmm. weren't, we'd still be cave people. I, I want your take on this because now I'm curious. A lot of people probably forget that we've cloned uh, sheep, Yep. right? Like that, that, that's something that's like kind of like swept under the rug. Like we've actually accomplished like crazy things like that. What are your thoughts with that? Do you think it was the right decision because of ethically to kind of close the Pandora's box? Are there benefits to, to kind of keep going on that, that we miss in the media? What's your overall thoughts on that? Well, I think that cloning, there's, there's really nothing wrong with cloning. Cloning is not a process where we're going to take some cells from that and put them in a test tube and then connect them up to something. And somehow we're going to have another copy of Matt that is exactly the same as Matt. And then we can kill the original Matt and, and put in this. Or this the clone thing. will kill the original exactly. Matt. That's, that's the, prop, the plot <laughs> yeah. right there. Right. Or and put in some, some Matt doppelganger. That isn't gonna happen that's not the way it works there's a lot of environmental factors that go into it there's a lot of 
personality factors. There's a lot of other things that go into that. Yeah. A clone does have its value in huge ways in terms of research. When you are trying to test something and you're trying to test its exact effect, you know, thing A and thing B, it's wonderful when you have two things that are exact to do it, to test it again. To test, you know, um, a great sure. example are the two Kellys. Uh, yeah, right. Well, Senator yeah. now. Is Senator, yes, exactly. Going up into outer space. That's the closest to a clone, in a sense, that we sure. were able to do. But imagine, and I'm not talking about people because there's a lot of other factors there. But if you can, and you do, clone mice, you have two mice that are genetically identical. You can test the factors that are going on in terms of those, whatever you're testing, whatever it is. And all of that is going to help humans live better, feel better, exist better, and hopefully make the world better. You know, our, the mission of the company that I work for is enabling our customers to make the, the world healthier, cleaner, and safer. So um, that's tr what we try and do. And I think really most scientists do try and do that. It's the media. It's some science fiction, some action thriller that make, you know, these evil scientists that are out to do evil things. You know, there aren't too many Dr. Evils out there, no. fortunately. No, I, I agree. I've been interviewing scientists for years and years, and they're always the, the nicest, most innocent people that are just trying to discover something about the sort of basic truth of the universe or help people or something like that. Absolutely. If I can tell a quick little story, I worked for a number of years, as you know, in entertainment. So I did PR. Um, I skipped some of the other things that I've done. I worked for a, a, a gaming company, things like that. And we always joked, there was always ego involved in entertainment. There was always like, I'm going to do this. You know, Look, I created a new dragon for this Dungeons and Dragons type game. I am the coolest person ever. And you'd be like, oh my God, you know, enough, enough. It's not like we're curing cancer here. Just stop. <laughs> I now work at a company where we actually are doing things that help cure cancer. And I get none of that ego. Yeah, nice. One person <laughs> who is like, look what I did. It's like, you know what? We're all in this together. We all want to cure cancer. It is so in a way refreshing. And I think that speaks to what the way that most scientists are. Jeff, I wanted to ask you a quick question. When you're talking about how genetic manipulation of humans already is here, do you think that the sort of Gattaca and Khan from Star Trek, you know, sort of like superiority complexes and, and differences of, of like genetic cast is something that could happen? Or do you think that really just more of like the taking it to the most dramatic level and going from there? That's a great question. And the reason I say it's a great question is because science fiction really isn't designed, it, it doesn't really predict the future. It, it looks and it speculates on the future. So I always am fearful that if I say, this is what I think is gonna happen, I'm predicting the future. I don't, I think, yes, is that possible? In the scheme of things, anything is possible. Um, you know, uh, President Trump could be president. Oh wait, it happened. You know, lots of things can, can happen. I don't think it will. I think there are a lot of safeguards, a lot of other things that go into it. And again, I don't think that clones will, will grow up. They're going to grow up like everyone else. They're going to have the same life. You know, they, they're not going to be cloned as a full human. I don't yes. I'm not going to get a, a, a John Connolly that looks exactly like you a week later or a month later or a year later. Why not? 
why not? I think there's a lot of there's a lot of things that have to go on. Cloning has to start from a stem cell, then it has to or stem cells. It has to break into various types of pieces. Um, it is not ter- We are complex beings and complex characters. And in the same way that I mentioned before, Matt, that there's constantly um, mutations going on and things happening, they may have to try and, and clone John a hundred or a thousand times before they get a clone that, that lives to, um, to maturity. Put cloning aside, look at all the, 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 the pregnancies that end in miscarriages or other issues now. It's still very difficult, and it's difficult for people to, to have babies just the natural way in a lot of ways. And again, speaking of science fiction, IVF, in vitro fertilization, another thing that uh, when I was born, when we most of us were born, was science fiction. And when the first uh, IVF babies were coming around in the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of worry. Will they be normal? Will things be okay? It turned out everything fine, and now it's just a standard thing. You don't even think about it. You don't even talk about it. It just is. But I think that, to your point, John, it, it, I think anything is possible, but I don't think it's likely. If I might ask a question, <laughs> given that you think that we, we're sort of leaning more towards modification rather than outright cloning and growing something, um, would we start seeing the emergence of, say, black labs where you can potentially have your uh, yet-to-be-born children modified ever so slightly, you know, making sure certain genetic markers are ticked on or off, uh, certain traits that you might want are preserved or not? Would you? Uh, is there potential for such a thing, or is this just um, sort of easy fear-mongering? And I'm talking especially after, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, but Hei Jiang, Jiang Kui. Um, yes. The, mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the Chinese scientist who modified two embryos to be uh, free of HIV. Would we start seeing more of that in the future? I think you could. That is the, the point where we would have to have the technology really coming down to, to your point, the black lab level. And a lot of it has, but at this point, there, there still is a number of hurdles to go. But I do think that's a really great point, uh, Yuda, and I think it's a, a really great question. And that is one where I do think you might see some of that. There actually was, uh, touching base on transhumanism um, again, a couple of years ago, there was a, a show on the BBC called Years and Years. And yes. I don't know if you saw it. That had a great little sequence where they had kind of a black lab doing transhumanism, you know, giving a, a I don't want to give too much away for those who haven't seen it, but you know, a, an artificial organ to someone, things didn't go quite right. Yes. <laughs> paid the price. That was a tough one to watch. That was tough. Actually, it's, uh, Jeff, something you had mentioned just a little bit before, you were talking, brought up in vitro fertilization as an example. Yeah. And um, I read a very interesting article several years ago that was talking about the nature of why we're beginning to see more people be infertile is because of people who were able to be conceived by in vitro fertilization, but who are now that whatever that trait was, was still carried over. Mm-hmm. And so the actual potential that over time we could become infertile as a species hmm. by just like, the increased percentage of people who were born that way. Mm-hmm. Which um, I'm yeah. sure we could. I'm sure we could solve that as well, though, right. if we put our mind to it. And yet, we still are having a population explosion. I think that that would be potentially a problem of the uh, rich and first world problem in a, very in a very literal way, and uh, a, a very uh, 
for lack of a better way to put it, a rich folk problem. You know, it'll be interesting to that point, if that is the case, whether it would upset the economic situation and the socio-political situation because minority groups would grow while the groups that are at the top, which at this point, at least here in the United States, tend to be white uh, middle class or upper class, they may have those problems. And you're going to then see social and political and economic uh, impacts that no one necessarily is predicting at the moment. That's fascinating. So, and that's the, that's the fun of great science fiction. It's very easy to focus on the science part, but it's all these other pieces that are going, you know, when you look at cell phones in Africa right now, they, people who are living in, in mud huts, more or less, have cell phones. And that how that connects them to the world in a way that they were never able to be connected before. Um, and what that does to the information they have better and worse. I mean, some of the, the things that we're seeing in the political arena here in the United States, at least in terms of truth versus uh, fake news, you know, there's no editing filter. There's no filter there. You used to have a, a, a set news media that you had that had an editorial function. And, and before, for all those listening that realize that other voice coming wasn't then. Yuta is uh, uh, signed in and asked a few questions for everyone curious who that was. But uh, now since Yuta's in, engaged himself, he's a data scientist uh, who does a lot of stuff like this. And when we had talked to him, Jeff, one of the things that he works on is, uh, you know, social engineering and, and the way in which, uh, and Yuta, please correct me if I butcher this, because I'm the least scientific person <laughs> out, of, out of the three of us on here. Well, uh, well I don't work, like, I don't do social engineering. Uh, <laughs> it's just that, that's, I'm just, just sort of making myself seem a little less evil. Uh, I do, of course, have plans to conquer the world and, you know, dominate it with crocs and so on and so forth. However, um, I study misinformation, linguistics, um, social networks at scale. So, like, correlations between friends and so on. And as you were saying this, Jeff, uh, William Gibson's brilliant saying the future is already here. It's yeah. just not even distributed. just flashed so hard into my mind because we have done... Like, like I was telling uh, Matt and John earlier, we did this project where we did like 12,000 face-to-face interviews in India to understand how, um, how people's lives changed when they actually received access to the internet. And by we, I mean the, the think tank that I'm part of. And one of the really interesting things that we found consistently across a lot of countries in South Asia is we would ask people, um, do you have the internet? And they said, no, I don't have the internet. Do you have Facebook? Yes, I have Facebook. Mm-hmm. So that perception is that, you know, this is Facebook and the social network, really the, the social web or web 2.0 is essentially their first introduction to this vast information ecosystem out there. And that fundamentally changes how they react to it. Like mm-hmm. in Sri Lanka, where I live, we are technically a third world country. However, we have 104% over subscription of SIMS. We actually have more phones and more active connections than we have humans. Mm-hmm. And 98% of the country has a 3G or 4G signal. Mm-hmm. And this is a generation that completely skipped forums, um, you know, ADS, like sort of <laughs> dial up. Um, most of them have never like used a, a broadband connection uh, and just went straight to smartphones mm-hmm. with uh, quad core processors and like 5GB of RAM and the cell phone, uh, like camera built in. 
Mm-hmm. But I'd love to know in terms of how they process the information, those steps that we all took, whether it be from a newspaper to the radio to TV, you know, historically we have taken these steps. Now, when they're getting their news and their information from Facebook, they've lost all those editorial steps that used to go in there. And when you say something is true, the person on the other end, they have no idea whether you're an expert or just making something up. So, Yeah, and like anecdotally, there are massive generation gaps in how people process information. Um, If you take, for example, uh, people in, say, my parents' generation, uh, they're... Like my mother will often say things like, oh yeah, I saw this. And she'll say something that's blatantly false. I saw it on the Facebook. Mm-hmm. Because to her, that is a broadcaster. And that is a source of information on par with a TV channel. Whereas to sort of the younger generation who, who were introduced to computers somewhere in the middle of their, while they were growing up, they sort of understand how to slice and dice information. And this is a skill set that is almost completely alien. To the point where, you know, we've had presidents who are saying, well, oh, no, I've, I've never seen this before except on Facebook, uh, convoluted history. But it's interesting to see how sharp that divide is and how differently they respond to these yep. systems, which is so spot on with what you're saying. And I think this is, Matt and John particularly, I think this is something that, that is super important because while we're busy talking about the science and while we're busy talking about these amazing advances, all it takes really is one or two high placed, or, or I shouldn't even say high placed, highly regarded by an audience person to be an anti-vaxxer or an anti-GMO uh, person, to be that person, uh, you know, if it's a Kardashian here in the United States who says, nope, this is wrong, you've immediately alienated that percentage of people, a large, a meaningful percent of people from believing what science may say, because they don't know the difference for whatever reason between what Dr. Fauci says and what Kim Kardashian says. And I, I, I'm using names, obviously, but it, you know, in the future, it could be names we can't even imagine. No, and to that point, actually, I, Yuta, I wanted to ask you, uh, what was the event or events that eventually came to you helping to found Watchdog? Oh, that was rather gruesome. Um, 2019, um, bombs went off in Colombo. Uh, this was quite recent. Um, so in sort of, uh, let me sort of collect my thoughts on this. Uh, basically, three churches and multiple hotels are bombed in Colombo, which is the city where I live. Uh, it was a terrorist attack. Um, and, you know, we were there like we were working in the city um, and what happened was you know in addition to the body parts being flung around everywhere and people sending me whatsapp videos and so on and asking can you help us identify you know whether our relatives were caught in this uh, in addition to that what happened was rather interesting the president at the time was a man called Maitri Balasiyasena there are for the record there are entire colonies of bacteria with more intelligence than this man his response to this whole thing was nothing. There was no communication from the government for somewhere like seven hours. So there was all this rumor and misinformation running around. The massive vacuum was filled. People were panicking left, right, and center because Colombo is a, a small city and you 
pop a bomb off in the heart of like, this is the commercial capital. I mean, people are absolutely panicking. There is no message from the government at all until a minister comes uh, online and says, oh yeah, yeah, I didn't go to church this morning because my father talks with all these intelligence types. He knew this was coming. Mm-hmm. And the president comes back and says, no, I knew nothing of this and promptly fires the heads of state intelligence and police. And anybody who goes on TV saying, we, we anticipated this um, and told the president, that man came and basically just fired them and said, no, no, I knew nothing, not my responsibility. So when you have a situation like this, you have massive amounts of misinformation going. And we saw that happen in real time. Uh, we saw, you know, stuff going up saying, oh, I've heard that there's, you know, f- my brother is in the army. There's a truck full of worms going up and down Gaul Road to, I heard the Muslims did it, to don't drink the water. It's been poisoned. And, you know, this actually translated because because of how these things translate, you've heard in India of like mob violence because of WhatsApp messages. In our case, uh, you know, people would call me and say, you are, I heard the water supply in Vattal or whatever had been poisoned. And I would say, hold on, let me call my journalist friends there because I used to work as a journalist. Um, we call my old contacts there, let me see if there's anything up. By the time I got back from the call, there would be vans outside on all the streets going around saying, don't drink the water, it's being poisoned. Completely unfounded. So at some point we realized, you know, we had to do something. Our media is also rather controlled, I would say, by about seven people who are either parliamentarians, married to parliamentarians or related to parliamentarians. So it is extremely partisan. That's it, you know, it's an extremely partisan situation. And fake news has been the name of the game here since, since, I don't know, for the last 50 or 60 years. We've had entire resistance movements based on so we realized at some point we had to start fighting back. So uh, a couple of friends of mine had just started working on an app. They called me in. We spent like five days in a hotel room and boom, just launched this Android app. And we had 10,000 users on the first week and, you know, 150,000 users shortly afterwards. And at a point we like, you know, we just kept doing things. We just kept doing this. And it came to a point where last year I sort of realized we were monitoring somewhere like 11,000 WhatsApp groups, huge amounts of Facebook, uh, just proactive search for keywords and then data dumping. And we had at some point scaled up to 100 volunteers on the back end. And this is an entirely free service. It's entirely volunteer run. So uh, that was sort of like the genesis of it. And uh, much as I'm proud of it, uh, it's not a sustainable operation. Not in, terms, not in terms of financials, but in terms of what it does to people who join us to be volunteer fact-checkers. Because there's only so many videos of body parts that you can watch before you at some point. Like, we've had people who had, like, a mental breakdown in the first week of operation and just don't know. That's, that's in, there's a story that I'm writing right now called Engagers with my buddy Bruce. And mm-hmm. we dive into the idea of what happens when you see too far beyond the veil, but you're not necessarily prepared to see that far, right? And yeah. um, and the, 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 what you're saying sounds like the real life consequences yeah. of those paradigms, right? Because it's not only about the science and finding the truth or figuring out a way to express it, but it's also about the humans that need to consume that data put them into the machine, Absolutely. read what's being outputted, and then Absolutely. explain that. Exactly what Jeff was saying, like what it does to people, what all this technology and all these, all this stuff actually does to people. We saw like, you know, 
school groups and office groups turn into rabid centers of misinformation, not because people are inherently evil, it's because people are panicking and you have mass panic in a situation where, you know, because previously you would have been panicking at home with your family and friends and you'd been able to look out and go, right, is there anyone at my gate? Is anything on fire? No, okay, let me calm down a little bit. Now you have like 200 people in a group and they're all panicking and this is like a mass riot just happening outside of meat space and that then translates back. So yeah, it, it was nasty. It was, it was really nasty. It was constant, constant PTSD. I think at some point we were having a conversation and we had just like me, there was, there was down to me and one other co-founder. Everybody else had just burned out. And we were in conversation and we were like, you know, screw these people. Like they should all be shot. And we, we were like, this is after like several years. And we were like, okay, wow. So this has gotten to the point where ethics frameworks have completely degraded to the point where we're okay with actually saying that people should be shocked for this. And this is bad. <laughs> this is really, really bad. And and I'm curious to know in, in a situation like that, because we here in, I live in San Diego and we have often have fires around us, fortunately not where I'm at. And I see people who I, who I trust, who I know, repeating false information, and they're trying to do it from a good place. They think they are trying to help, when in fact, they're actually just creating more panic. Did you have an experience of, of how, how you could either A, sift through that, or B, you know, the people that, quote unquote, you want to shoot, you know, they, in their hearts, many of them, not all of them, but many of them were trying to be helpful and do a good thing. Oh, uh, absolutely. Um, we found that hacking homophily helped. Mm -hmm. uh, and homophily is this principle of how we connect to other people based on, uh, and we, we tend to form connections with a lot of people, but the connections that last and the ones we tend to trust and place high informational value are usually along lines of age, geographical proximity, gender, race, religion, ethnicity, and so on and so forth. And also there's a lot about the number of people, like we have social circles, the more nodes, and if you think of it in terms of graph theory, the more nodes in a network that are repeating the same information, the more likely it is for a particular node to pick that up. Mm -hmm. So we basically thought about how you would construct a 51% attack on a blockchain network. And to some groups, we deliberately went about doing that. We started looking at people and deliberately sending them like key critical nodes, this information. And then they flipped and they started sending this information to their second degree networks. So now instead of like, you know, 50 WhatsApp groups that were spreading this information, at least half of those groups would have a few nodes that would constantly go, no, I have this counter information. And over time we saw entire networks flip to the point where we saw groups that initially were good-natured spreaders of misinformation, as you suggested, um, eventually flip and start proactively like go to groups that they were part of and say, no, no, this is this is false. Guys, Watchdog is, here's screenshots from Watchdog. Here's, here are the links that they provided. Let's go read up on the news and let's actually make an objective assessment. Mm -hmm. So we've seen some success, at the, but it, we went about it in a sociopathic way, <laughs> but that had to be done. I have a perfect question to lead up here. Um, so in that, to that note, and this is to both, I'll end this one first to you, Jeff. Okay. Do you see AI machine learning being able to be employed to create an unbiased 
fact-checking system? It's a great question. I do think to a great extent, yes. The short answer is yes. But the slightly longer answer is garbage in, garbage out. So we have to make sure that the filters that go in are clean and, and, and unbiased. And the unbiased part is really, I think, the hardest step because it is so easy, even, even editorially, historically, there is always, almost always a bias to something. What is a freedom fighter to one group is a rebel to another group. And that subtle difference in language works great in a science fiction story where it's fiction and you're trying to put things across. But when you're trying to teach something to be objective and tell the, the truth, you run into some problems with that. And I see Yuda nodding, and I'd love to hear his point of view too. But Absolutely. Because this is what I'm doing actually right now. So my project for me and my team for the next uh, two-ish years, we're working on like AI for misinformation. And when I say working on like machine learning for misinformation, <laughs> we've so we're actually building classifiers um, that that are meant to serve in an assistive function to human fact checkers. And we have achieved extraordinary high levels of, of accuracy. I initially thought we were overfitting. So, you know, we started scaling up the size of data sets from 5,000 news articles to 405,000 news articles to 9 million articles. And we are still achieving over 95% accuracy on using XGBoost and random forest, which are like not even deep learning, which are fairly understandable machine learning. However, there is a caveat. The caveat is this is for binary classification. Mm -hmm. And it is using words. It's not necessarily going out and searching for truth. It's not looking for ground truth data. It's not calling journalists up and going, have you heard about this? It's not establishing truth. It's just looking for language features that seem to match patterns of fake news and patterns of what's credible. And it is a binary classification. It misses out on a lot of that gray area. Um, it really can't handle that, to be honest. We're, we're just looking to, like we looked at this and realized you can't take the human out of the process. And as Jeff pointed out, this is often the space of multiple truths. We can use some a framework like Sayers practical adequacy to narrow down the space of truths. Like if I say I can walk on water, if that, if the expectation generated by the truth is not met by reality and I actually sink, we can discard that truth. Even so, there are questions in the middle that are really almost impossible to narrow down on. So you can't really take the human away. The other is that like all models, this will keep getting outdated because it's using, like, like Jeff said, you know, the data that you feed in is critical. So it's using a corpus of data that is current and relevant. Over time, it will start to degrade. That 96% will become 70%, and then it'll eventually it'll pass below the accuracy of a coin flip, and that's when you need to throw it out, and you start building afresh. And that constantly needs to keep happening. It's, it's an eternal tug of war. So we're actually doing this in three languages, uh, and then there are also language structures that come into play, like, like English has a future tense. My native language does not. Mm -hmm. uh, my, I, I speak Sinhala, for example. So our tenses are atita and anatita, past and not past. We don't actually have future tense. We have present tense. With, we can put like a time stamp to indicate that this might happen. Um, so, crazy. 
Yeah, so like language structures come into play um, and change so much of of the fundamental assumptions about accuracy in these things as well. We're doing Sinhala and Bengali. I have no idea how Bengali will perform. It might be that fake news having its own separate language is purely an artifact of English. And it may be that all of this is so much hot air for every other language not on the West Germanic tree. Although what about, I would ask, what about fake news? If you look at World War II, the whole part of the whole uh, war, as it were, was was giving the other side fake news. Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. giving the other side fake news so that they would believe it. So, um, you know, fake news in certain rare instances has a value. And we have to be also uh, able to, to ascertain that value and have uh, understand where it has to be where it has to be used even when you're talking to someone and, and you're telling them a little like what little white lie it's fake yeah news. and um, it's and, fake news. Mm-hmm. and i mean you like even before you run into war propaganda you run into say religion yeah yes and um, you know do you go around saying well your invisible friend in the sky is patently false uh, no <laughs> let people believe what they need to believe because it forms a useful function in how societies mm-hmm. uh, stick together. This is a reasonable set of guidelines so that people, there's, there's utility to a lot of things, which is, which is often where like machine learning models go catastrophically wrong. And to their credit, humans also go wrong. Yes. Uh, so I'm hoping that we will just be better at going wrong. <laughs> and I think going back to the, what you had said before you about the generation that has lost some of that ability to to parse through or filter some of that i think there's more of a chance for it to go wrong as as we have that that function going forward because yes. they, they don't know the yes. filter to look for. yes and i think this is what I was, I was responding to a question that john asked earlier about governments um and the tools that they get and how how they react to like you know how what are concerns with governments getting some of this technology and the inevitable fear is that the governments are made up of this generation at least in this part of the world the generation that doesn't really understand technology or its fallacies or its implications to them a computer is a thing that is supposed to be better than a human and that's it there's a lot that goes wrong with that kind of approach do you think though that there's um you know generation z is now effectively been born slash like all of their conscious growing life has been exposed to smartphones and the internet and instantaneous you mean communication. The, the TikTok generation? Yes. So I was meaning just like that how as we're phasing from, you know, boomers all the way to the TikTok generation and there's people who remember the universe before internet and there'll be those who only were in it. Kind of what, to your point about how you were seeing there are people in uh, different places in the world where they were being exposed like sort of through social media and that was how they're getting their information. Do you feel though as information is now accessible on the internet instantaneously, just is that like a, I don't want to say net, negative or positive, but I think we would agree a permanent shift in where what people believe in and what people try to get their information from you know versus going to encyclopedia or well i think beliefs belief systems and information sources will always keep shifting and that's that's part of the name of that particular game what's really interesting though is how people communicate and how social structures shift because if you take the telephone 
I mean, that, that fundamentally changed how societies function, the ability to just pick something up and reach a person halfway around the planet in, in a split second. Can you imagine functioning without telephone? Because like for me, this is actually quite difficult because pre-telephone lives were largely everyone you were going to meet in your life was most likely within a hundred mile radius of where you were born. And that's who you met, that's who you dated, that's what jobs you did, that dictated everything. Um, if I go to say my mom's uh, village where she, where she came from, where electricity was only delivered quite recently, just after the war ended, like 2009-ish. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's the social pattern there. And you know, it's completely alien for a lot of them to think about like having conversation like this or having, or even thinking about working from home or like how cities work and so on. Uh, completely different dynamic. And I have a feeling that uh, the TikTok generation who are completely native to it will have patterns of behavior that we are struggling with right now as you know, remnants of like the industrial revolution, work days, work schedules, how we work, who we choose to work with, how we choose people. Um, there's definitely going, I think there's definitely going to be a far more social element to who we choose to work with. Um, there's, I don't know how power structures are going to look like in that, but are they going to be dictated by how popular you are or how many memes you can generate? I have no idea, but this is, this is it feels like we're on the cusp of a social shift. To that, I wanted to add another question, you know, as we, if we jump into the future of humankind and we, you know, start going to the moon and then after that we start going to Mars and we hit the point where instantaneous communication is no longer possible because of distance, how do you feel that will then again change the nature of communication and interpretation of information across you know, distances that are greater than real time. You know, when you're in, for, when you have to send things in bursts. I mean, we do it now anyway. Obviously, you know, we we send videos and we and we send audio clips. But as as that being the only way, almost like you know, sending digital letters. If you look at history repeating itself, for most of humankind, that's the way communication was done. Totally. So so I I think that humans are uh, immensely adaptable. And they will certainly adapt to that. They will also create their own histories, their own cultures, their own belief systems, all these other things that happen as an isolated group out in the moon, the Mars, beyond Kuiper, wherever they go. Um, hey. <laughs> so, that, was, that was a beautiful. Yep, that was a lovely yeah. reference there. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think they'll create some of their own, their own, histories, everything from belief systems to languages. You may see some groups becoming radically futuristic and going in a direction we don't believe. Other people may become radically, um, go backwards. I would say almost radically prehistoric, as yep. it were. Yep. The Luddites, the Neo-Luddites. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Um, you know, they'll go in, in ways that are appropriate for whatever their community is and whatever belief system they either create or adapt from whatever they had. Again, if you're looking at a generational starship, certainly, you know, going to Mars is something we can do in, in a single, more than a single lifetime, but, you know, a single person can go there. Yeah. And, but, you know, once you're talking, uh, at least in, in the realm of, of the physics that we know, um, if they're going to go to, say, Pluto or Jupiter or somewhere, 
you're looking potentially at generational shifts. Ascension. You, yeah, you exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You may not even have people. Interstellar. Who, yes, who are reckon who who socially are recognizable to what you have. Um, you could, yeah, you could have Lord of the Flies on the ship, or you could have um, a completely different, futuristic, wonderful, um, peaceful society. We we don't yeah. completely know. Yeah, and the, this was this is why I loved like the the film version of the Expanse mm -hmm. because the builders have such a distinct language uh, and they have had hand gestures, right? Yeah, that I, I completely love because that makes so much sense. Like the Sasake and Bell and Beltalauda, and the, you have this mod complete linguistic drift that's gone on. Whereas you have the UN speaking, I, everyone on Mars speaks in Australian accent, which is oddly appropriate in my mind. <laughs> like if you want to colonize the planet, you see the Australians there. <laughs> but um, and they explain yeah. that, like in backstory, it's where a lot of settlers came from, so they could kind of like, work that, like for Mars yeah. particularly, like where people settled to it from. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if you can survive kangaroos and drop bears, you should be able to survive Mars. <laughs> I know drop bears aren't real, but <laughs> you can, if you can survive all the creatures trying to kill you, in yeah, in the uh, in the Australian yeah. desert. Um, well, also for the builders, I thought it made perfect sense that they were, uh, you know, there was this clan structure scattered across a large area that'd be very difficult to have one leader, even one singular government. Yeah, and so that was that. That's going to be, I think, another interesting thing that comes out of having these communications gaps. You're going to find upper bounds that don't really exist right now. If you look through history, like ancient empires were constrained by how fast you could communicate from one border to the other. And those are your boundaries of control. Beyond that, you're going to start running into difficulties where your provinces are doing things and you don't hear about it until six months later and you've accidentally declared war on someone. So you're going to, what I'm looking forward to in say like you know, 500 years time or whatever, is seeing massive dissociation of cultures again and these isolated pockets that Jeff spoke about where you have all these interesting things happening and it's going to be basically like um, pre-industrial revolution earth with so many different cultures and so many different ways of doing things and so much color and variety. If I can also add real quickly is we we historically when we send people to space now the 500 or so that have gone into outer space they're an elite once we start colonizing, we are no longer going to always be sending elites. We will be having the plumbers. The, you know, if we, if we terraform, we'll be sending the farmers. We'll be sending an entire social strata of people that will act in very different ways, given their socioeconomic status, their background, their things like that. And I think that's going to play in a lot of different directions that, if we're writing science fiction stories, gives us absolute number of stories to directions to go yep as yep. much as i want to keep this going for hours we have to wrap soon but <laughs> something that you said jeff right there i have to i have to ask you an opinion on before we wrap is sure. you use the word based on their socioeconomic stature when talking about expansion mm -hmm. do you think that that will actually matter once we've expanded off planet or do you think that currency is going to turn into some other form and there won't be a, a financial system the way that we have one today because in most 
futuristic sci-fi. In most places, once you go off-world, um, the economic structure in which we have today is just is destroyed, and something new comes up that could be better, could be worse. But what do you think? Do you think that that is you know fiction, or do you think that the economic structure that we are understand will kind of fall apart into something else in the next iteration of expansion? I think the economic structure could fall apart. There's absolutely, historically speaking, there's always been things that are more valuable than other things. And, you know, when salt was valuable, when salt was super meaningful, before there was refrigeration, salt had a value. We go to, you know, right now gold happens to have a value. We go to some place where there is a ton of gold and, and I'm, you know, maybe it exists, maybe it doesn't. I'm just picking something out of the air, literally, in terms of where we go. That would change the economic part. I think well, Aztecs, the, the, when, the, when the Spanish invaded, gold was so commonplace that they didn't really think much of it. Mm -hmm. In fact, they valued cocoa beans. Right. And I think, but I think that when I say socioeconomically, you do have to have, in most cases, a leader. Someone has to make a decision to do something. There can be trouble in that group. There can be revolution. There can be uh, friction. You may have two leaders fighting, which would end up putting you in a war, etc. But you do need a some kind of political structure. When I say political, it doesn't necessarily have to be in terms of parliament or a governmental structure. It be a military-based structure in terms of that. There has to be someone to sort of lead the way, or a number of people lead the way. I'm gonna I'm gonna open up a can of worms right now that I don't need. I, I'm so compelled to say this, even though I know we need a wrap. But we started this episode talking about uh, neural nets and and the ability to become a cyborg. So your your point of a leader, I would push back and say, why not the Borg? You know, we might have a hive mind when we have the technology to expand out, and maybe there isn't a leader. Maybe everyone's connected through a neural net. In which case, are you? And, and I'm asking you, and there there is. I know there's no solid answer. What makes the final decision if you have a thousand people, and I'm picking that number out of the air, who are connected via a neural net, and they say we need to cross cross this land and open another uh, uh, colony over there because that's where the the best food source is, whatever that may be. A shameless plug: my graphic novel Darkwing has something called <laughs> Cell, and Cell is basically a collective consciousness AI neural net type thing and it's just the majority of the, the collective whatever the majority of the people decide on a question is what happens mm -hmm. okay. so there there would be um, like I can think of a very interesting way in which uh, a collective might be a suboptimal structure because a collective is basically one single thought process that is distributed you know is shared among all these different nodes. So you don't get at the edge optimizations. Like people discover things and they find ways that work and they bring it from the edges to the center of society. Um, a collective might fall prey to this whole idea of something Henry Ford used to say was, if I had asked the people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. A collective would have been, you know, would have, you know, thrown all of its resources, might, might, uh, throw all of its resources behind what the middle of the bell curve wants and say, right, we're going to build faster horses and just ignore potential innovations that are just lying at the edges waiting to be picked up. 
but just a, just pontificating. I think that's a great point. Yeah, and, and I think that, I think Matt, you again, you raise a great question. And, that was a great question. You know, I do wonder if you always have a group, whether it's uh, whatever that size group is, who are always part of the minority. At a certain point, historically speaking, that minority is going to go. I'm done with this. Mm -hmm. I, I, yeah. You're not hearing me. And to your point, Jeff, that's why you should read Darkwing because that exactly happens. And what what transpires when that minority group feels like they're not spoken is is the whole ethos of the book. So, right. I'm literally googling uh, Darkwing right now. And wait, and and if memory serves, it takes place in the same universe as Beyond Kuiper. It does. It, it, I, I like to I like to call it if Beyond Kuiper is your Iron Man story. Darkwing is your Guardians of the Galaxy. So they're in the same universe, they're different parts of the galaxy, and they have their own stories and they intersect when needed down the line. Mm -hmm. Yep. yep. <laughs> <laughs> Sold, got it. <laughs> this is gonna be fantastic. Um, but I think that's a great place for us to, to leave off for tonight. And both of you need to come back on. Hundred percent. Yes, uh, absolutely. This was. I amazing. would love to. And um, I was going to ask Jeff, may I have your email? Because I learned a ton from just listening to this session, and I'm not really an expert on anything biological. I'd love to like pick your brain sometime if you have time and energy. Absolutely. I actually was going to link it to you. Uh, yes. And I have your name written down, and I was going to uh, do that. This. This is me. Okay. And uh, uh, for everyone listening, this is Putting the Science in Science Fiction. Jeff Berkowitz, special guest, Yuda, will not try to do any more than that. John's a much greater man than me. Uh, Jeff, is there anything you want to plug before we sign off? You know, the only thing that I would plug is, uh, quite honestly, this show, I had such a great time on this. This was <laughs> such a great discussion. Thank you, John. Thank you, Matt. And, and to my new friend, Yuda, thank you so much. This was just great. I, I just had the best evening. So thanks. We did as well. Yeah, thank you both for being here. And now uh, the, the, they thank, never. Thank you, thank you for setting this up. Um, Yuda, you enjoy some breakfast, I think. Yeah, uh, as I say, it's the morning. You're probably. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, thanks, guys, and tune in next time. <laughs>